just so you know, from my end, it's not fun to follow the kids. Um, they, they, they kind of uh, raise the bar and there's nowhere to go but down from there. But uh, if you've got a copy of uh, scripture this morning, let me invite you to take it and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 14. Um, if you've got a tablet or a phone and you can pull it up on, on there, um, BibleGateway.com has an incredible, incredible um, Bible app where you can have really at your fingertips um, hundreds of translations of the Bible, several languages. We, we had a good conversation in our uh, college and career Sunday school class this morning about different Bible translations. There, don't quote me exactly, but there's something like 32, 35 um, major publication English translations. Um, and uh, you're like, man, why do we have so many? All of them are, are governed by the hand of God and how they're translated. So, so we have the assurance that the God who gave us his word has protected his word um, in there. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, um, there is a black hard copy in the back of the pew in front of you. I want you to take it. It's yours. We, we give it to you. And, and I've had people look at me funny when I've said that before. Like, wait, that's the church's Bible. You can't really give that away. Um, if you feel better, go find a lost and found and get a leather bound one. That's fine. Just do that. Um, they weren't using it anyway. But, but seriously, the, 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 the one that I, it is much better for me to know that you are taking a copy of the word of God home with you to look at and to read than for it to sit here in the pew week in and week out. Because we have, I'm, I'm Baptist. That's why I pastor a Baptist church. But I, being Baptist means that I come out of a larger group out of the Reformation. Now, the Reformation is about 500 years old now. Um, and, and here's the deal. One of the biggest things about the Reformation was that Christians in the fifth, early 1500s, Martin Luther, Uix Zwingli, um, Gutenberg, several of these men believed that it was important for followers of Christ to be able to read the scripture for themselves. It, it's almost disgusting how blessed we are with our accessibility and availability of the scripture for us to read. There are people groups in this, in this world, on this planet right now, that have no access to scripture. It's not translated into their language, into their dialect. But, but we, because we come out of this larger group from the Reformation, we believe that it is important that each of us take the word of God and read it for ourselves and, and, and ingest that. This is a big difference from, from Catholicism. This is a huge shift because it used to be, this is why it was so big for Martin Luther uh, when he made one of, one of his 95 theses be the accessibility and the readability of the word of God for the individual believer was it used to be that you didn't know the word of God unless the priest told you what you knew about the word of God. It was in Latin. It wasn't in, your, it wasn't in your language. So you would go to a church service, to a mass, and listen to what the priest read and what the priest explained about that. Now just think for just a moment. We're joined this morning by our, our Hispanic ministry. And, and we're so fortunate that, that we have such a robust number of men and women of families from, from several different South and Central American countries that come and worship here. And many of them understand English very well, but there are a few that do not. And fortunately, for the ones that do not, we have someone well-equipped like Pastor Darius that doesn't mind sitting in the hottest corner. Of course, it's cold outside today, so the hottest corner of the sanctuary is not so bad today, but he doesn't mind sitting up there to put 
put the words that I'm speaking and what the word of God is teaching us into a language that they could understand. But imagine that you didn't even have that. You had to go and listen to someone speak in a language you didn't understand about a word of God that you didn't really know and you just had to trust that it was okay. Man, that that doesn't sound good at all. That is what the Reformation was for so that you and I could have a copy so we wouldn't have to go to that priest. We don't need a priest. We have the greatest high priest in Christ Jesus. And we're gonna come back to some of these ideas as we go. But we didn't need need to go to the priest. You don't have to come to me and say, can you read me this passage of scripture and tell me what it means? You can come and ask me, hey, I'm struggling with this. How do you interpret this? And we'll walk through it. But you don't have to come to me to get to God. And we're thankful for that. So if you've got a copy of scripture, now you do because it's right there in front of you. Or if it's on your tablet or on your phone, I'm all about using whatever means necessary. Good grief. You pull up the Bible Gateway app on your phone or on your tablet right there. Like I said, that thing's a whole lot smaller than this and you can carry the Bible anywhere with you. This thing right here gets through airport security and uh, customs in other countries, you know? So it's right there ready for you to use uh, the word of God. But we're in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We're looking at a specific point of Abram's life um, as he is embracing uh, what God has promised to him. So if you have found your place and you are physically able, I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we reverence the reading of the word of God together. Uh, This morning, we're going to cover all of chapter 14, but for right now, what we're going to read are verses 17 through 24. The word of God says, After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shavah, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And now he was a priest of the most high God. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, creator of the heavens and the earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And there, Eshkol, Mamre, and let them have their share. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have the assurance of your word that you are God most high. That you are the creator, the possessor of heaven and earth. And that we can look to you. Father, we are grateful this morning that we have your word preserved for us generation after generation after generation to see what is the beauty of our Lord God and King and his his heart's desire for us to know him. So Lord, may we know you and make you known today as we look at your word and we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we get into this passage of scripture and maybe you're having this thought. Evan, you just told me that we didn't need a priest, but clearly there's a priest that's at the center of this passage with Abram. And you're, I'm, you're right. 
He is there. And we're going to talk about this priest, this Melchizedek. If you were with us last fall, we did a, a, a quick I Give series on stewardship. And we, we hinted at and touched on Abram and Melchizedek. And now we get a little bit more of what's going on with this story. But if you haven't been with us as we've walked through the book of Genesis, basically here's, here's what you've missed. God created everything and we messed it up. God created everything, the heavens, the earth, man and woman in his own image. After his image, he created us. He breathed the breath of life into us. He gave us everything. He gave, he gave Adam and Eve uh, uh, the, the, the responsibility to, to rule the earth, to fulfill, to fill the earth, to do all these great things. But they just said, just don't eat out of that one tree. And Adam and Eve ate out of that one tree. And from their destruction... The, the, the heartache of knowing that your oldest son killed your younger son in your first family. The continued promise of how a vengeance would be taken to the point that God in the book of Genesis chapter six says, I am sorry that I have even made man. Now, I want you to just think with me just for a moment. Think with me just for a minute how long it's been since Noah was on the earth. That was a long time ago, right? You'd have to trace back several great grandpappies to get there, wouldn't you? It is a long, long way. It wasn't that long into the creation of man. Ten generations. And God said, I'm sorry that I made these people. But all through this, God has issued a promise, a threat of redemption that has come and said, there will be one that will come that will make all this right and enter Abram. And to Abram, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will make you something that no one has ever seen before. I am your God. And then last week, we got into a little question of strife and a little question of anguish because Abram and his, his nephew Lot were unable to coexist in the land, even though everybody else was there, even though there was the Amorites and the Perizzites were right there in that same valley they could not and so Abram was forced to make a decision and told his nephew Lot look we've got to split ways so so if you want to go to the right you go to the right and I'll go to the left if you want to go to the left I'll, I'll go right and you go left and and Abram it says there that Abram gave this decision to his nephew Lot and Lot looked and saw that the valley of the Jordan was plush. It was fertile. The grass was green. It was beautiful. Man, it was, it was, it was amazing. And so he said, we're going that way. And Abram looks over and all he sees is barren, the land of Canaan, craggy, rocky, dusty, and all he had was the assurance that God gives him in chapter 12 and says, for all the land which you see, verse 15, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth that if anyone could number the dust of the earth then your descendants can also be numbered. And Abram had to trust the promise that God said, this is enough for you. Because what God offers is always better than what we can take for ourselves. A little bit with the promise of God is a, worth a whole lot more than where Lot landed and it said that he was settled on the edge of Sodom. And we get into our passage this morning. Here's a little background of chapter 14. 
Well, background chapter 14 is there's a war. There's a battle that takes place. It says there that it came about, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. It came about in the days of Armathel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Kerdolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war. And there were five kings that they made war with. So here's what's happening. History tells us about city-states. Maybe you remember way back when in history class, learned about ancient civilization. I'm not talking about the 1920s, the 1930s. I'm talking about long before the long before that real actual ancient civilization, before there were telephones, before there were believe me, kids, there was a time when there were no cars and there was no telephone. I promise you. I don't remember it, but I read about it in a book. Years Centuries ago, there was city-states. And city-states were these self-governing regions. It wasn't kind of like this big outline. It was whatever fit within the wall that could be protected by the wall of that city-state was what it was. So, so let's, just say, uh, let's just say we're talking about the city of Fairburn. What would actually fit within the wall of a city-state for Fairburn would kind of come along the backside of our property and landmark and kind of go down Bay Street a little bit and then come back. We want to make sure we get Rooster King inside the wall because Rooster King has the best wings in town. So we go up here behind Rooster King and we come back around on the other side across Dodge Street and back over here. We're not going all the way out Rivertown Road and we're not going out 74 or Fayetteville Road. We're just kind of coming right over here. We got to make sure we get uh, Domino's because you want Domino's because you got to have pizza and wings, right? So you got Domino's and you got Judy's and you got the store right over here at CVS because we all need to get our prescriptions filled. And it comes right back over here uh, on the other side of our property. And there's a big wall that towers and that's it. It's, it's, about, it's about a mile. It's about a mile, square mile right there. That's what's fitting inside of the city walls. And that was a self-governing. And whoever was in charge was the king. So Kedoleomer and these other guys, they are the kings of their own city-states. And they have bound themselves together. And there were nine of them at one point that were bound together. But Kedoleomer, he was kind of the one, he was like the dom. He was the one that shook down all the other kings and he made sure that they were paying to him. But it says there in the book of uh, Genesis chapter, um, excuse me, um, chapter 14, verse four, it says, 12 years after they had served Kedoleomer, but the 13th year, these other five rebelled. And in the 14th year, Kedeloomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karanaim and the Zuzim in Ham and the Enim and Shavah Kiriathim and the Horites and their Mount Sire as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. So you're not paying the man his money. He's in charge of all this. So he's not really all that happy. That's kind of where wars start. Man, we talked about strife. Strife is always the result of serving self. Man, you're not serving me with your money and I'm more interested in me getting my money than you having your peace and welfare and happiness in your own city state. So I'm coming after you, right? That's a big deal. And it points us to a very important principle. And we're just gonna feed into Abram. But the important principle that we gotta understand is that the world presents threats to our faithfulness. The world presents threats to faithfulness. Now, I'm not saying that we need to bend up and have uh, walled city-states and have all these allies. I'm talking about what's happening right here. At some point, the pact between these five kings and the other four kings was broken and the faithfulness was not there. And it was usually self-serving. But here's what happens. 
War breaks out across the land. And it says there that they turned back and came to end Mishpah. This is verse 7. Verse 8 says, The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, uh, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kederlaomer of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Ermaphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. The odds don't sound like they're really all that good, but it might have been somewhat even. It says in verse 10, The valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them, into the tar pits. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And so the four kings, then it says, verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and depart, departed. Verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. Verse 13, and a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew. So now Abram's inserted into this story. Up to a certain point, it's just that these kings and these kings didn't get along and so they had war. You know, it's kind of like what we hear about in the news every now and again. We hear of tribal leaders in, in, in the Middle East and South Asia, you know, going to war and everything. And like, what does that got to do with me? What does what Kerdolaomer and, and the king of Sodom, what does that got to do with us today? What does that got to do with Abram? Well, Abram is now inserted into the story and it's brought to his attention. Your nephew Lot, your lifeblood, your family is now affected by this and you've got to do something. There is an opportunity now for Abram to either be faithful to his family or just say, nah, I'm good. He's the guy that took the good land. I'm just going to let him have it. You want to know how you come to the turn, how you know that you are past strife? How do you handle someone when they need you? How do you handle someone when their back is against the wall and you are their own lifeline? You've got no issue with them, you help them, right? If it's within your power, if it's within your will and your ability. It might be that you really like this person, but they need $100,000. You're like, you know what? I'm behind on the power bill. I can't help you with $100,000. You want to, and if you could, you would. But if there's something you can't help them with, you do. See, this world sneaks in and tries to steal something about the faithfulness. But I want you to consider this. I want you to consider what Abram's going through on his end and the question of where's God's faithfulness in this? Lot is the only family I have. As far as we know, from, from the time the sons of Terah are listed in, and earlier in the book of Genesis in chapter 11 to now, Lot is the only name that continues. So as far as we know, there is no other lifeblood for Abram in the world. And God has promised, your family will thrive in this land that I'm giving you. Your family is going to thrive. It might not look like much, but I made it. I know what it's capable of and I know what I can make it into. So are you going to trust me or are you going to trust what your eyes can see? Man, don't, don't you get in those opportunities where the world slithers in and just gives you a little hint of God's not got your best interest in mind? Is he, is he really being faithful to you? See, see the lie of the enemy slithers into our heart unknowingly. And it makes us question, is God faithful? Well, if God's not faithful, do I gotta be faithful to this God that may or may not have my life, my heart, my, my, my well-being in, in, in his own mind, right? 
So that's the backside of the lie. The backside of the lie is you only have to be faithful if someone else is faithful. You only have to uphold your end of the contract. And if they don't uphold your end of the contract, nullify the contract. Do what you want to do, right? But did we enter into a contract with God? Or did we enter into the promise of his covenant that he would not leave us nor would he forsake us? And this world, with all of its war and rumor of war, and it might not be kings that are fighting about against each other, but it's some sort of turbulence, it's some sort of turmoil that's going on in the circles around you, if not immediately within your circle, that causes you to stop looking up and start looking down. That causes you to stop looking towards the God who was faithful to, the what, to what you can control. And here is Abram with nothing but a word from a fugitive that he's never met. Your nephew's in trouble. What are you going to do? Well, fortunately, Abram's a man of honor. And it says there in verse, in verse 13 that he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. These were the same guys that were mentioned earlier when we read the end of the chapter. And it says that when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, those that were born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night and hid his servants and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and brought back also his relative Lot and with his possessions, also the women and the people. See, it's not just enough to know that there is a, pre a threat presented. This world is going to require that you and I are discerning. It requires that we exercise discernment. We have to be able to see what's going on, why it's going on, and what God would have us to do about it. Everything about this world wants to distract you from that. This world's system wants to shift you into thinking about what's good for me and what's best for me and how do I protect myself with no regard to what would God have me do? How would God have me use where he has placed me to, to use, how would God use me and where he has placed me to bring himself honor and glory and joy to someone else? Look what's going on here. It says here that Abram had to hear the word, that he knew that his, his, his uh, nephew was taken, his relative was taken, and he started looking around and saying, okay, what's going on here? Now, it says that he took 318 trained men from his own house. I heard a war general say one time, I never go into battle with a gun I have not personally shot. Think about that. I've never gone into battle with a gun I have not personally shot. My middle school principal, when I was in fifth and sixth grade, Served as a paratrooper in Desert Storm in the early 90s. His wife was my kindergarten teacher. I, they knew me from the time I was uh, smaller than Caleb. They were members of our church. His wife and he and his wife are still good friends with my parents. They went, uh, went overseas together just a few weeks ago. But, but he, he, was, he was in Kuwait during Desert Storm. And he used to be stationed over here at Benning. He'd, he'd report to Benning for his weekends and everything. And he'd have to go on these, these, these training missions. Because you don't just get into battle and jump out of an airplane just because you've actually practiced it a few times. You know what you're supposed to do. 
And I remember as a second grader, he wrote me a letter from Desert Storm. He wrote me a letter from Kuwait. And it was exciting to get it and everything. And one of the things that he wrote in that letter, and I think my mom still has this letter, but one of the things that, that he wrote in that letter was, I always make sure I pack my own parachute. I always make sure I pack my own parachute. I had friends in college that liked to go skydiving. And, and, and they, they like to jump out of planes because apparently the being on the ground isn't safe enough. And so they had to do something else. And they'd always ask me to go with them. And it's like, I'm just really not interested in that. And finally, this one girl, her name's, her, her name's Anna. She asked me, why don't you want to go skydiving with us? I said, because I don't know the people that pack the parachute. I don't know them. I don't care if it's their livelihood. I don't care if they're strapped to my back and they're jumping too. I don't know them. If we would exercise that same kind of discernment with a parachute, why do we not exercise that same discernment with everything else that goes in our life and how the world wants to infiltrate and confuse us and cause us to look other than where God is? Look at what happens here. It says that he went with them. He took his allies, men he could trust, trained men that were with them, and he took them. And look at this. He says he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and they defeated them. I want you to hear something with me. This is one man, Abram, with 318 that went up against four kings and their armies that just defeated five kings and their armies. And because they were discerning, because they saw the hand of God, they had victory. The reason most of us don't live in victory is because we're not discerning. We're taking whatever advice we can get off of a people magazine, off of a television show, off of anywhere other than the word of God. This is why I want you to have a Bible. We cannot be discerning to the world in its ways if we don't know what the word of God says about this world and its corruption. This is the same world that God destroyed with a flood. And don't think that just because it hadn't flooded that to that degree in a couple of thousand years doesn't mean that he could not destroy it immediately. See, he said, I'm putting my bow in the air in the sky because I'm not going to destroy the world by flood again. You know why? Because next time it's destroyed by fire. I don't know if I'd rather drown or be burned, but I'm thankful for the grace of God that says you don't have to have either. That's why I want you to have the word of God. That's why if you don't have, because what we do, we go to our friends and they like us, but are they pointing us towards God? Are they pointing us towards the truth? Are they pointing us towards what might satisfy and soothe us? See, it's a whole lot easier. It, it, trust me, believe me. I have, I, one of the things about my position, about my job, about what I do that's oftentimes uncomfortable is I have to give people a, advice about stuff I've never been through. That's hard. The easy thing is to just say, well, you know, just do what makes you feel good. That make you feel better? Go, go that way. It's not easy to stare truth in the eye and to step out in truth, knowing that that truth might make someone hurt, even the person you're giving truth to, but it is necessary. Abram looked at the truth of the situation and said, there is no hope for Lot unless I go after him. And because God has placed me in this position, I have trained men around me that I can go with and we will have victory. So will you with discernment. 
So the other thing about this discernment is what happens with Abram once he gets to the other side of victory. It says there that after his return from the feet of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet, which is the king's valley. Apparently, the king of Sodom found a way out of the tar pit. And I, I don't know about, y'all, y'all remember Uncle Raymond's stories? Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear? So I've got this picture of Br'er Rabbit and the tar baby. You remember that Br'er Rabbit's hopping through there and, and, and the wolf had made, a, had made a tar, a, a, a little baby figure out of tar in order to, to catch the rabbit. And, 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 and Br'er Rabbit looks at him and says, hey, how you doing? And doesn't answer. Well, he feels offended because, yeah, I just greeted you. you what's, up? what's going on here? So he said, hey, I said, how you doing? Didn't say anything. I'm telling you, how are you doing? He got mad and he punched the tar baby. You know how you put, put your fist in tar, right? It gets stuck. Well, that made him even madder. So he kicked it. Now his foot's stuck. He's stuck. Somehow the king of Sodom got out of being stuck. And he comes to Abram. And there's this other figure that comes to Abram. Melchizedek. It says there of Melchizedek that he is the king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of the most high God. And Melchizedek offers a blessing to Abram and says this, Bless be Abram of the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemy to his hands. Well, you know, the king of, so- the king of Sodom offered something to Abram too. Look at what it says there in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me, And take the goods for yourself. One king offers him a blessing. The other king offers him wealth. And what Abram is able to see here is simply this. That the world will always offer less than God, not equal to. Not equal to. Remember the king of Sodom. It said, in chapter, it said in chapter 13, after, after the two, the men split and Lot went and camped out and, and pitched his tents near Sodom, it said that the wickedness of the people in that city was exceedingly great. Exceedingly great. And this man comes and says, Abram, thank you for your work. In order to bless you, I'm going to give you all of the wealth. All the plunder, all the spoils of your conquest are yours. The king of Salem, Melchizedek comes. Says, I'm going to give you some bread. I'm going to give you some wine. I'm going to give you a blessing. And Abram, because he is discerning, and because you and I need to see how discernment works, does this. It says there at the end of verse 20, that he, Abram, gave a tenth of all to Melchizedek because he saw the righteous hand of God at work in this man. But to the king of Sodom, he says, "Um, I'm good. He said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor and creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made you rich. See, 
This world is always offering you and me something that is less than what God is. It offers us fulfillment that is less than God. It offers us satisfaction that is less than God. It offers us a place in society that is less than where God would have. I would rather have a place in in the heavenlies than a place at the highest banquet table in the land because it is always more with God than what this world could ever do. And so too often, because we, because we have failed at being discerning, because we don't know the word of God, we've not hidden it. The, the psalmist says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I've made a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. We're not walking in the way of the word. We're walking in the way of the world. So we're always consistently let down because what we have settled for is less than than what God has given. It, it could be that relationship that you've been striving for. And you've been praying about it. and You, you, know, that, you know that you're one day going to date somebody. I'm, I've got a, I know I've got a number of, of single people here. You're praying about that one. Where is he? Where is she? Mr. Wright. Miss Wright. And then what ends up happening is we settle for Mr. Wright now or miss right now. We trade in what is convenient for what is given by God and we, we, we can sanctify it. Oh, this is my answer to prayer. We do it with jobs. We do it with, with promotions. We do it with finance. It's sad, but kind of, it's, that's not even funny. It's just really sad. Last fall when the, the Powerball or Mega Millions, whichever one it was that got to like $1.6 billion or whatever, one of the news stations here around Atlanta was just kind of catching people like as they were putting gas in their car and talking to them about it. And it's sad to know, I wish I had just kept a tally, but the thing I kept hearing and hearing and hearing was, I've been praying about this and I think that God is going to bless me with this. It's so easy to take the benefit of the world and confuse it with the blessing of God, right? Right? especially when it makes us a little bit richer. It makes us a little bit, but the gospel doesn't promise us money. The gospel doesn't promise us perfect health. The gospel doesn't promise us a bigger, better house. The gospel promises us that we get the blessing of God. And Melchizedek comes in here into the, into the throne, into the, the presence of Abram. And he says, here is the bread. Here is the one. How fitting that we've got the Lord's Supper going on today. The, the broken bread the broken body of Christ, the, the, the glass of wine, the, the, the poured out blood of Christ. That is what is where we are. That is what we need. That is what God has given. But it's so easy to say, well, you know, all these things that the world gives, they're pretty good too, right? And they're always going to fail. Always. Because they can never measure up to who God is and what God has done, which is why in our discernment, you and I must see that we need the king of righteousness. We need the king of righteousness. You and me both. You and me both. He's like, okay, wait a second. You just lauded this Melchizedek figure a few minutes after he told me I didn't need a priest. But it says there that he's the king of Salem and he is a priest. So, so now you're telling me I need this guy, right? Let's back up just a moment. The author of Hebrews over in the book, uh, in chapter seven, the book of Hebrews, speaks of this Melchizedek and notes that he was one without father or mother or any notable genealogy. He just appears. 
He is the king of Salem, which is now the, where, where, where Jerusalem sits. Jerusalem literally means the peace of God. So this figure is the king of peace that enters into the life of Abram and offers him a blessing of God because he is the priest of the most high God. The name Melchizedek is made up of two words in the Hebrew. The words Melech, which is king, and Zadok, which is righteousness. This is the king of righteousness. Now let's let's piece a couple of things together. He is the one who is the priest of the Most High God before there ever was a priest of God in the Levitical line given under Moses. He is the priest of the Most High God. He is the king of peace and he is the king of righteousness. And there is only one figure in the Bible that upholds all these and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that what we have here is the bodily presence of Christ Jesus before he was born in the life of Abram to say, I am the reason you have peace. We need the king of righteousness. We need him. The one who Isaiah says he will be the prince of peace. Here he is, the king of peace. The one who said that on him the government will rest on his shoulders. He is governing over all of God's economy right now. The one who the author of Hebrews says that when he made purification of sins, which is the role of a priest, he sat down because his work is done and we need him. What about you this morning? In just a few moments, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Before we do, we're going to have a time of invitation where you examine your heart and look and see, do I have this king of righteousness? Do I have this king of peace reigning in my life? Am I discerning to the ways of the world or am I easily taken asunder? Am I easily distracted? Am I easily pulled by the lures of the flesh? Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Run to the king of peace. He broke his body. He shared, he shed his blood that you might have the righteousness of God.